I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, The Hackitude Sessions. In this series of conversations centered around my book, Hackitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you conversations with women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us track our journey through the dark woods of the second half of life. Hackitude is a radical rewriting of the decades ahead for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Hackitude, the book and the membership program at hackitude.org. Hi everyone, and I'm particularly delighted to have with me today Carolyn Hillier, who I'm sure many of you will know. Carolyn is, well, I could say lots of things about Carolyn, and I'm sure we'll get to a lot of those things as we go through the conversation. So briefly, she is a musician with uh, 12 solo albums to her name, as well as others with her husband, Nigel Shaw. She's a writer, and we'll talk about some of her writing and, and listen to a little bit of it in a moment. And a teacher who focuses particularly on women's journey and circles. And Carolyn lives in the heart of Dartmoor. Carolyn, welcome. Thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Thank you, Sharon. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. And talking about Dartmoor, let's start there because I know well, one of the things that first drew me to your work many years ago now was that, like me, your your work is very focused on, rooted in, grounded in the land that you inhabit. And although I tend to have moved a little bit more than you have recently and, um, you know, my rootings have been serial, uh, yours is quite deep there in Dartmoor. So can you tell us something, just a little something about your place and what it, what it means to you? Yes. Well, we arrived here about 30 years ago wow. and I realised when we came here, we were with our small family, our young family at that point, but I realised that the work was going to expand and deepen and take me into places that I really had no idea was coming my way because I had never um, been in a place where I could have such a, a profound relationship with the land and such a wild relationship with the land. And the unfurling of that was really gentle. I think those first years, it felt like we were getting used to how the land wanted us to be here. And then it built momentum. And certainly the momentum gathered as we started to open up to other people to come here, um, which it from, from my point of view, with my work, involved a, a lot of women coming here over the years. So many thousands of women have passed through this land. And I really feel that every time women gather here in circle or create ceremonies or do any of the things that we share here, the prayer of the land is deepened and intensified. And I'm simply here holding it and um protecting that protecting protecting that intensification and the the roots of that that are going down into land and it, it isn't something I could have done on my own but it's definitely something that the land welcomed and and wanted to happen and can you imagine being anywhere else do you think you'll see your days out there I can never imagine <laughs> being anywhere else in fact I already have my little area in the marshes um planned <laughs> for the bones <laughs> so, oh, <lovely>. uh, <laughs> 
Okay, so well, here we are talking about all things hagatudinal and elderish, and I know that that's something that you have been thinking about, obviously, and writing about for for quite some time. So, uh, you have you have two books or um, works of writing that seem to me to be relevant to that. One is your beautiful Weaver's Oracle, which is based on your old your own paintings, many of which are of older women as you imagine them in your own kind of imaginal world. And the Book of Hag, of course, which is part personal reflections and part story. T tell us a little bit about those two mm. projects so far. Yes, well, I I spent my 20s questing, as many women do at that age, many people do during those times. And I think I began to anchor something as I headed towards the end of my 20s and it specifically happened when I started to paint so the painting was a way of really grounding myself into my route into my pathway and at that point I stopped looking out into all the various beautiful blessings and the richnesses of other people's um, spiritual traditions and I concentrated on what I could find within the land that I was sitting on and in within myself. And certainly those first paintings, I painted them kneeling down with my legs open as if they were being birthed directly from me. It felt like that I was pulling them out of my womb. And then as time went by, I slowed down the painting process considerably and I began to really reach into who these women were who were arriving. They're all at least life-size. A lot of them are larger than life size and they need to be that big because their their presence their spirit feels so huge that I couldn't paint them smaller than that so that it's been a very physical um, experience engaging with them as they arrived over the years and they are all ancient and most of them yes you're right most of them are old women and it has felt that they have have stepped closer and closer as the circles and cycles of paintings have taken place around me I feel like I'm sort of sitting in the middle just um, pu pulling them in through the paintbrush and that reached a, a climax really a, a, a completion in a sense in about 2015 I then realized all the women who were going to be part of this oracle which I, I hadn't even realized until I got to the end of that journey I didn't realize the oracle was going to happen but it did this weaver's oracle and there's 52 of these women in, in it of these weavers and they really grounded all the work I'd been doing over the previous 30 years and then I stopped painting I didn't paint for seven years wow. and I I was really curious and confused about that and then I I started again last year to try and I didn't manage it last winter but I've been painting again this winter and I'm back in there with them. And I realise it's because I needed to be older before I start painting this cycle of women because they are about being in on the hag road and on that road of our, ultimately our death journey. So I needed some years to pass by before I could find them again. That's interesting, isn't it? I had that similar experience with writing Haggitude that I had to go through 
my own journey with lymphoma and almost dying before I could have the audacity to think that I had anything to say about elderhood, I think, you know, from my particular perspective. And it's interesting how these things interrupt us in what we're convinced is a perfectly wonderful and natural flow and just stop us in our tracks and say, hang on a minute, don't get ahead of yourself. That's absolutely true. And I learned it really, it's quite amusing now I think about it, that when I started this series of volumes, Book of Hag, um, I initially thought that I would be doing one every two years, something like this. I had a sort of schedule in my head. <laughs> I realised, of course, I had to grow older in between each one and they would take their own time. And I am now just working on the second volume now. And I think it's been about five years since the first one came out. So that's important. I, I couldn't rush it. How could I possibly know how I was going to write book two until I put a few more years under my belt, really? So. Exactly. And just briefly, uh, returning to the Weaver's Oracle, all of again, all of your old women are profoundly grounded, aren't they? They're very earthy old women. Can you just tell us some of the names for the people who won't be familiar with your work? Mm, yes. So they always come in cycles. They, they arrive in groups of women. And I know beforehand how many there will be, but I don't know who's going to come. And some of them come very fast. In fact, towards the end of a cycle, I'm often painting maybe two at one time because they're arriving so quickly. Um, I've done a series called The Weathered Women, um, Women from the Weathered Edge, and they're all about the cycles of the land, the um, seasonal cycles of the land. The most recent cycle was called The Shaman Weavers, and they're women who are weaving the mysteries and magic of the earth in many different forms. And so they're reaching through to the to nature, to raw nature, to the wildness of the earth and pulling it through in their different representations, the shaman weavers. And then I've been traveling a lot the last 20 years in the Arctic North, initially in Sweden and then in Siberia for many years. And so I did a series called the Udigan, the Northern Sisterhood of Drums, and they were entirely found on ancient ice. That's where those women um, arrived for me so that's a, a kind of a sense of how they are the ones I'm painting now they are women who are hunters in the marshes they're hunting spirit birds so they're I, I before I could start painting them we needed to build a prayer track literally a physical prayer track trackway through our marshes and we did that over the last few years and as soon as that was finished I could walk along it and start to feel that they were arriving onto that prayer trackway. So it's preparation for painting can take quite a long time and be yeah. quite physical. <laughs> yeah, no, that's wonderful. Um, that's wonderful. And, and one of the things that I love about that work and about your Weaver's Oracle in particular is it taps into something that I am often talking about when I work with women, particularly those outside of the kind of Celtic, obvious Celtic countries like Ireland and, and Scotland and to a lesser extent Wales, where we can talk a lot about, you know, a kind of a, an old woman who is actively there in our mythology, in all of the old stories and in the old folklore and in the place names, the Kaliach. And then people often say, well, you know, I live in the middle of the New Mexican desert or whatever. I'm not going to find the Kaliach there because she's very Irish and very much, you know, a creature of wind and uh, wave and rain. And so a lot of my work has been about trying to teach people to find their, old, their mm. own old woman in the landscape, you know, to find their own archetypical iteration, I guess, of the Kaliach or the old woman. And in a sense, that's precisely what you're doing. 
because these old women are not pre-existing in stories they're they're coming exactly. out of the land into yes. your dreaming i guess that's exactly true and um they come in their many different skins and textures and lands and colors and uh, i have noticed really witnessed over the last years as, as women have been working with the Weavers Oracle, how they do take these women, you know, just one or two of them, perhaps, particularly to each individual uh, traveller and make them their own and, and even sometimes rename them because it feels important that they make, they personalise them. So in a sense, although they are archetypal, I don't feel their archetypes. They feel far too personal. <laughs> to, right. for, for me, I feel you know this this individual woman and this individual woman that I'm painting. They they bring another layer of texture to the weaving. Another set of threads they're carrying in their hands, and they they often um, feel familiar. As I move around the cycles, I come to paint a woman who I feel like I already travelled with her, but I'm I'm going into a different journey with her that that's further into the spiral and deeper down and we go off in a slightly different direction so in that sense I suppose I am continually revisiting archetypes but every time they're manifesting in these different ways and I hope that that enables other women to have the freedom to let them be who they want them to be for their own journeys. Well they're they're very much recommended to anybody who is listening and you can find them on Carolyn's website, which we will talk about right at the end. And turning then to your own personal journey, do you mind me asking how old you are? I'm 65 this year. 65, there you go. And I know that we were going to introduce this part of the conversation by having you read out something that you have written recently about that journey. Yes, thank you, Sharon. Uh, it's a an unpublished story. I haven't actually shared this with anyone yet, not even in a workshop situation. Um, and it's going to be part of the next book of Hag, but um, it's something I wrote in the last year or two. I've been working with it and it's, it is a personal reflection of where I am now really. So it feels like the best way I could describe my, my place where I am on the Hag road at the moment. It's called Crone Elder Hag. My hair is thinner, my skin is drier, my knuckles are rougher. Perhaps my dreams are broader and my prayers are deeper, although they do not carry the urgency or glittering illumination of my younger years. Most days I sense that my soul is tougher, but tough enough to handle a personal meeting with those three? Maybe. Their invitation arrives, so I'll go anyway and listen to what they have to say, but I am feeling both defiant and reticent. Crone Elder Hag a vessel of wizened intuition, a wealth of old womanhood and a daunting prospect for the night ahead. Their summoning is, of course, to a midnight audience in a wooded glade at the dark of the moon. They're not without style or a love of symbolic flourish. I cannot say that I know any of them well enough to feel confident as I head out on the steep track to meet them, at least not in these forms, not as definitive manifestations of their names, not as women who represent the core meaning of the terms by which they're called, not simply as crone, elder, hag. This all seems too stark, too exposing, too blunt. No poetic mythology or ritual artistry to soften their message or embellish their magical form. No place to hide. 
In the dark wooded glade, the three old women are sitting on tree stumps, each lit by a lantern hung from a pole that is stuck in the ground. They greet me with some warmth, so this encounter does not exactly feel quite as unsettling as I feared. They seem a little formal, perhaps, but they're kind and I soon find my ease. There is no spare stump or stone to sit on, so I kneel rather stiffly on the ground. Crone, elder hag, the three sisters occupy this glade as if it has grown to be part of their bodies. There's a mystery that drifts between them like shimmering fabric, silken and black and translucent, an undulating thin space that reveals something of the secrets and wonders and magics they hold, a wavering window that shows something of the loss and the lessening that each one of them wears in her bones. I am entranced. I want to hear what it is that they know. My defiance and reticence already mean nothing. It turns out that we are not strangers. Indeed, so familiar is the feeling between us that I see we are kin. They invite me to speak. Before they will share their own wisdom, crone elder hag, they want to hear what it is that I myself know. What do I know? A bit of all of it and not much of any of it, and occasionally everything there ever was and can be. I know the bundles of joy and the burdens of grief and those tiny hand-sewn purses of grateful awe. I know the love and the leaving and the finding once more. I know how life is a whirl and a flow and a stillness, how death is the light touch of fingertips out on a boundary with time. I know the things that I've listened to, and that the things that I've watched from far off and close by. I know that I'm ageing, that my body and strength and resilience are not quite as they might be. And mostly that's fine, but sometimes it's not. I know that I've chosen to be here. This moment has come. It's my turn to sit with the three ancient women to hear what it is that they know. So I urge crone elder hag, I'm ready to listen. And the first of them opens her mouth to start speaking. With a deadening jolt, her words are snapped away from me, sucked up by a hungry wind that arrives as the world takes a turn and I find myself buffeted and blown, sliding and slipping, unwillingly cast out from that dark wooded glade, suddenly return to the bottom of the hill. The trio of old women seem as distant and as unreachable as they ever have been. The earth beneath my hands is rocky and trembling. I sit here confused. There's something amiss and nothing feels right. Pestilence is stalking the track up ahead and throwing its stink-rotten shroud over everyone. We all get distracted by shards of fear and the ashes of loss that it scatters around. It's carelessly trampling our certainty into the ground, killing momentum and strangling freedom. We wander in confused circles or panic and run up and down. It takes some time for humanity to gather our spirits and recalibrate our futures and venture tentatively back onto the road, bruised but unbowed, lessened by bereavement, but strengthened by the small pockets of unimaginable kindness we have found. When I eventually emerge, the hill seems unchanged and untouched by the maelstrom, but like the rest of the world, I am not. I set off again up the very steep track, my energy less now, my unflinching resolve just a little more flinching, my hips somewhat painful compared to the last time I tackled the hill. The old women are waiting, of course, in the dark wooded glade, which seems 
denser than before, a thickening of blackness and secrecy. I breathe and hard and push through to the centre of the glade where crone, elder, hag sit on low wooden benches, the same and not different, like nothing has happened in the circling world to disturb their long vigil like something stayed constant inside their close huddle of rituals and mysteries and heavy grey skirts. I squeeze in between them, once again taking my place in this circle of sisters, this wizened and enwizened tribe of old women, crone, elder hag. I belong here beside them, I know this, or at least I'm yearning so hard for this now to be true. Their kindness is greater. They reach out their hands and wrap gnarly fingers over my own. Again, they're asking me, what do I know? And there is so much more now since the world tipped and trembled, since I grew a bit older, since I had to walk back up that hill. I talk and meander and ramble through uncooked impressions and half-baked realisations until I grow silent and let the rest of my words fall down unspoken, spilling all over the floor. Is it time now, I ask them, crone elder hag, for you to divulge what you know? I lean forward, so ready to learn, so eager to be in my old womanhood, and the second of them opens her mouth to begin talking. But in a startling, heart-stopping moment, the whole sky rips open with deafening resonance. A storm snatches her words and tosses them into a chaotic firmament, a downpour of rains and a shattering of boundaries as brittle as glass between what is real and unreal. I roll in a cascade of mud, tipping over and over. The drenching and chilling and suffocating mud carries all before it and deposits me slammed onto my back at the bottom of the hill. I open my eyes and take stock. A war is raging. I see the fires burning along the horizon and hear voices calling out all over the land. No time to glance at the hill far behind me. I'm small in the vast moor of a battle, barely a bite. I creep to the edge of the road and find others tucked, hidden there down in the ditches and under the bushes. And what can we do but set prayers out at night when the stars become quiet? or tie webs onto twigs that remind us how love is connected all over the world. We wait it out, share blankets with those who are trembling and collect water to offer to those whose souls have become far too dry. The war remains distant, but it's eaten at our hearts and not one of us can stay whole. The tale of the battle is long and so very thin that it lingers and whips at the edges of people and memories and lives that are cherished, mangling them, tangling them up, into tight knots of pain. I do not try to climb the hill again. Perhaps I've abandoned the quest, but the terror slowly dissolves. The night eventually returns to stillness and the land is at last restored to silence. The mud dries to fine powder, red as the oceans of blood that have been spilled into it. All those around me wander away to find solace in sleep or hope in companionship or healing in helping to heal. Then I am alone. I stand at the bottom of this steep track. This story of Crone Elder Hag has changed so many times in the telling. It's stretched far too tight over the shape it once was, and I'm not sure it can avoid being torn. Time has blunted its edges and made my voice ragged. I cannot be certain the trio of old women are still waiting up there in the dark wooded glade. I almost cannot be bothered to find out. My hair is still thinner. 
My skin is even drier. My knuckles are certainly rougher and cracked by the chill. My dreams seem to be not quite as broad as they were. My prayers feel shallow. My soul is so tender and fragile like wisps of fine paper caught up on thorns. But I glance around and see the land quiet, nobody near me, nothing else requesting my attention or pressing my time. I might as well chance it, maybe third time is lucky. And if Cronelder Hag have hung on to meet me, well, it would be a shame not to show up and hear what they know. I begin very slowly to climb the hill once again. The glade is not visible now, so enveloped in dark matter. A black coat of shadow with no way to open and enter. I'm not deterred by this and pummel at the sides of the darkness until I've made a small hole, which I pull out and stretch so my body can stoop and crawl through. Crone elder hag sit calmly in the centre of the glade, each lit by their lantern hung from a pole that is stuck on the ground. There's a spare seat beside them, a low chair that looks inviting and warm. I accept the place I'm offered and the lantern they hand me, which I light and hang from a pole that is empty. Quietly I sit in the circle of old sisters. I say nothing. I ask nothing. They watch me. We wait. The third of them opens her mouth, but just yawns. So this next part of the story relies on intuitive sight. I'm pulling words out of the future, and who knows if when we get there, I will have chosen the right ones or managed to match up the tale with the truth. The plague and the war, just two, are the great waves of uncertain chaos that with swift, deadly impact will alter the course of a journey or a life or a world. Our bodies are too small to stem these dark tides. Our spirits are too vast to fit in the new shapes that assail us. No wonder we all come adrift from our souls. But this hill, this hill remains constant. And that mountain and that ocean and that deep rivered valley, the landscapes of ancient dream and wild prayer and sacred imagination can never be lessened nor broken nor entirely lost. Where else do we store all our hope and forgiveness, our trust and our grace, dignity, integrity, kindness and love, when the road all around us is falling apart? Where else is a refuge for all that we cherish, when even our homes become traps to ensnare us? Where else do we travel when all we thought safe becomes hostile and grim? I sit in the grove with the three old women, hidden by darkness and comforted by lanterns that light up our faces and warmed by the blessing that here I'm never alone. The story I thought I was telling dissolved long ago and now I'm finding another. It's about having faith and feeling safe and remembering to love without limit. I do not need to ask crone, elder hag what they know. Their wisdom is simple and it fills up this grove. It penetrates the silence and encircles the stillness. I weep tears of relief, yes. Wonder, certainly. Self-pity, possibly, but I'm not judging that. Let's call it compassion for all that I've found on this journey and everyone met on the road. I am becoming an old woman, but there is still more hill waiting. This grove is a base camp, a pause on the way. But the difference is this, after long hours or long years in the dark wooded clearing, when I start to grow restless and know I must keep on climbing the hill, 
The three women will shake out their skirts and stretch their old hips and pick up their lanterns on poles. They will kiss my dry cheeks and pat my thin hair, then match their own footsteps with mine. We walk up together, as slow as we need to, crone, elder, hag at my side. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And, and it all comes back, ultimately, to the land. Yes. Is that yes. what you have faith in and feel safe in? Yes. And as I have grown into the years of this seventh decade, I have rooted more into this place. I'm reducing my traveling so that I can keep my focus on being here. Um, the work that I'm doing here has also deepened. I feel it's got slower and deeper. And that feels like the energy of the journey, slower and deeper. And that feels wonderful, actually, a relief and also a challenge and also filled with possibility and unpredictability. Yeah. Yeah, I feel very similar in lots of ways being about to embark on what I hope will be a final move. I haven't chosen many of our recent moves, but they've happened anyway, uh, back to my own kind of motherlands, my ancestral lands in the north of England. And just to, to say that that journey actually was precipitated back to um, my ancestral lands, was precipitated by listening to a song of yours. Which is, is it? it Forest Yarn? Uh, where will you oh. lay your bones, my dears, when all is said and done? Oh, Sharon, that's wonderful. That, that line hit that. me yeah. just like a, a big rock one day when I was living in Ireland, the place where I had, you know, um, spent many, many years looking for that part of my ancestry and just made me realise that actually I needed to circle back to the place where I began. And that sense of the land, they're holding some wisdom that I don't quite know what it is yet, um, although they have a little inkling of it. And it seems to me, too, that that kind of, you know, final part of my own journey is even more deeply about my relationship with place and whatever whatever comes through that. Because you're quite right, it is it is in a sense when everything appears to be falling apart around us, when everything is actually falling apart around us, it appears to be the only constant that that, that holds us. Yes, and the, the truth that we know in our bones, absolutely. I feel I feel that where where I'm working now um, with with the cycles of work I teach women, the third layer that women reach when they've moved through hearth initiations as a hearth woman and then the shrine guardian out with on the land with the wild sh shrines, the third energy of this is soitla. I'll come back to that word in a moment, but it's the bone dreamer. It's the, the woman who is holding that place of really reaching into the truth that we know in our bones. And I really appreciate you um, sharing that phrase, where do we put our, where do we lay our bones when all is said and done? Because it is the truth that guides us to this uh, place of focusing our journey through these older years, I think. Yeah, um, but... Bones, for sure, are a big part of it, aren't they? I, in Hagitude, I tell um, a Siberian story, which I had a friend translate for me because I could only find a reference to it and not a natural translation of an old woman in a cave who sleeps on the bones of a dead hero to bring him back to life. So, you know, in, in that part of the world where you have travelled extensively, bones and old women seem to be inextricably linked. Yes, yes. Um, the... The language word I used just now, sweet la, 
Um, can I just share a bit about this language? Yes, please really do. Way to do it. So going back to what you just said about the journeys in Siberia, I, I came across a word during those years, um, this word Udigan, and I loved it so much because the word Udigan, which means uh, a woman shaman or a woman who creates magic by her hearth fire or a witch, an elder woman, all of these things it means. And it's very similar in the language of all of those northern peoples uh, on that far edge of the world going across that Siberian landscape. But the word for the male shaman is different, very different between the different tribes. But this female word is this very, very similar, Udigan. And the, 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 of course, the secret of that is that it's very old. So this word was being used before the tribal languages began to separate off. And I always loved the, the concept of that, of these jewels of words that are rooted in something much older than the place where they've landed. And about eight years ago, I stumbled into Proto-Celtic, which um, maybe you know, some of your listeners will have, have come across this language themselves. But I hadn't... Uh, I hadn't been aware of this before, and I became so hungry to find out about this language. And there's very little to discover, actually. There's a few places I was lurking around dark, dusty corners of the Internet to, to, to pull out some words. And then I worked with it for a, a few years and uh, basically treated each word like a bone. So I gathered all these words together um, that I was finding this is a Bronze Age language, so it's a mother tongue that fed into the living Celtic languages. So this is rooted in, in our landscape 4,000 years ago, but it came from Central Europe, so it's a very unifying language as well. It moved through Central and Northern Europe for coming to these islands. And it was a joy, really, to uh, work with these words that were very dusty and been translated in very academic, sometimes Christianized and misogynistic ways even, and to liberate them into a new, it's like burnishing them in the light of the fire, each word. And in the process of doing that journey, I was looking for women in that language. I was looking specifically for ancient old women. And I began to find them and some of them took quite some hunting looking for, but I just wanted to share with you eight of these women of these sure. names Brilliant. and I call them the women of the Matirja, the mother line. Uh, so these, these words are 4,000 years old, rooted in this land. And these, these are who they are. So Nani, she's grandmother, ancestor, mother, wise elder. Wedje, weaver of hearth magic, memory and life. Soitla, shaman woman, mystic. Spirit traveler, Lifagi, healer with plant medicines and ritual, Lagiano, shrine keeper, prayer anchor, land guardian, Wellet, the oracle voice, the myth teller, the truth sayer, Magsta, midwife, birthing companion, and protector of women, Raka Yika, woman who heals, mends and makes whole. Nani, Wedje, Soitla, Lifagi, Lagiano, Wellet, Magsta, Rakaika. Beautiful names. And will you be writing or singing more about those? 
would you like a small song? I would like a small song. I hope that's what you would say. <laughs> so I have a, just a small chant using proto-Celtic language. It's very simple. It uh, means sacred grandmothers, sacred bones, sacred breath of life, sacred earth and sacred blood. Thank you. Noi bonani, noi bonani, as kano kajo, biwo kajo, dijera kajo, kruatsa kajo. story and song in the same conversation thank you so much thank you so much that's beautiful in, in your writing in the piece that you read you were hinting at many of the things that are lost mm. as we get older that's certainly something that I have noticed having had a bit of a sudden onset experience with arthritis mm. um, having been very fit and healthy and um, flexible all my life all of a sudden to you know, stand up after I've been sitting on a chair and go, ow, 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 as my hip crunches. So that mm. obviously is the more obvious, perhaps, physical loss. But but, but how do you think about those losses as you grow older? Mm. Well, I my experience has been that they come in directions that I really wasn't expecting. It's as if they, they're coming up behind and I'm looking in a different direction entirely and don't see them approaching. And so sometimes... It can, uh, it can sweep you off your feet if you haven't got your eyes all around you. But also I've understood, I think, that there's nothing to be done when these losses, this stripping away that seems to arrive, possibly, probably when you start to go into your menopausal years and then as you head into crone years, there continues to be this process of stripping away. And it, it, you can't fight it. You can't try and avoid it you cannot do any of that because it's all part of our preparations to be in our old age i feel and i'm sure that you would agree with that too mm -hmm. um we're learning a craft in our old womanhood um it's a skill that we're honing and it's as if the stripping away and the lessening and the loss are part of helping us refine what it is exactly that we do need to carry forward with us. And sometimes the things that are stripped away are possibly things we never imagined we would need to let go of. But we don't kind of get a choice in that. In terms of looking after the land here, we've experienced it, the challenges to our protection, our guardianship of the land. And sometimes they have been absolutely monumental. 
and it's been more than we thought we could hold to keep the land safe and have its integrity and keep it as a sanctuary. But what I've understood is that the more you learn to look after the sanctuary, the wild sanctuary of the land, the more you're challenged in that task. And that just helps you to be better at your job. So in a way, although sometimes it can be, you know, you can be railing to the skies, wondering why another layer has come your way, but it's we're up to, we're up for it. We we must be up for it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be given those challenges. And the um, the task is just getting on with it, really. I guess I say it's always seemed to me, or it is not always, but more recently, as I've grown older uh, in challenging and challenged ways, seemed to me that that whole idea of more than we thought we could hold is exactly what, in a sense, we are we need to hold in order to be mm. all that we can possibly be and become all that we can possibly become, which I, I think, you know, we, we get as far along that path as we can before we finally die. Yes. Yes. That that's really true. And, and it is the case, isn't it? That actually the truth of the world is that it is the way of things that perhaps we're not given more pain or disintegrating sorrow then we can actually manage to handle we we just have to dig deeper to find those resources and that might sound a bit glib actually in the context of what's been happening over the last week in which you know the time reference of this is just soon after the earthquakes where people have been given the most monumental pain and losses to be dealing with but I guess human nature is to keep on trusting and believing and having hope and reaching out with kindness to keep supporting all of us through all of these changes and difficulties. And, and when you contemplate your own death, which of course is the inevitable end of the journey, or how, how do you feel? What, what, what comes to you when you think about your own death? Well, um, I think it's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit like where I'm sitting now in a way, because I'm in my studio and I am entirely in the company of every painting I've ever painted. And if you can imagine that, they, they are all larger than life size. Some of them are <laughs> eight foot tall. And um, they all, they never, they've never gone from me. They're all here, every single one of them. And so I'm surrounded by these old women who've been with me for years and years. I'm, I'm not saying that I need to die actually in the physical circle of all of these paint and paintboards, <laughs> but it's the energy of it. It feels like it's a coat I've been sewing for a long time. And maybe we put on this coat that is our lives and all the things that we have woven into that coat, all the important lessons that we've put in the pockets. And that coat's really important to us. It carries everything that we are. And maybe that's what it is like going into death, wearing this coat of our life and everything that we have learned and gathered and been given along the way. And what about your own ancestors? Because Dartmoor is not a place that you're from. So a lot of what you're looking at in terms of your own inspiration is very much from that land. Mm. What about your own ancestors? How do they play in? 
Well, I was delighted when I read your book, Sharon, to discover you also have a deep love for Granny Weatherwax. Oh, Granny Weatherwax. I know, exactly. So (laughs) when I was reading those Tiffany Aching books, I reached a phrase, like you you were saying, having a phrase that just makes everything suddenly have a a different meaning. And it was about, um, you can't grow a good witch on chalk. Yeah. And I, I, I was born on chalk, on the chalk of Hampshire, oh, and cool. never settled. And it was only when I got to the granite of Dartmoor, which I think yeah. the first time was when I was about 18, I went, no, this is it. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. This is where, this is the rock. <laughs> I'm not a chalk person. I'm a granite person. And yeah. then that granite stayed with me ever since. So I loved seeing that in your book, that you had that whole sense of the strata the geology oh, yeah. the, the psychogeology yes it's absolutely critical to me so here in wales i am on mudstone and you know i said that to a geologist friend and i said i can't i can't seem to find a footing here and she just laughed and said look it's mudstone you know it's barely rock um and it's true so where we're going to won't quite be granite although it's very close to granite which is a relief there's very little of it you know in um in britain interestingly uh, but it will be limestone, which has always seemed to me to be kind of a second best because wh- limestone is very weird. You know, all of the caves and the caverns and the... Mm. Mm. I don't know. It'll be interesting to find out. But no, it it is it is very interesting, that whole issue of literally the, the bedrock on which your feet are planted. I think yeah. we probably don't pay enough attention to it. And Pratchett yeah. was a genius for that, I have to say. He, he was a stunning genius. He got something with those witches. I, I was... I've always, you know, been very appreciative of what he wove into our understanding. Indeed. But what what do you fear, I suppose, for elder women and for women who are entering into elderhood? What what are the risks you think people run that that can trip or what are the things that can trip them up on that journey? I know that's a very, very general question, but and it's a good question. A it's a really good question. I think. The thing that comes first in my mind is women not women forgetting to trust other women mm. and forgetting kindness between women. And this feels, you know, this the con- the deep, profound concept or philosophy or truth of sisterhood um, is woven through everything I've done since I first ever heard the word, which was when I was a you know, political out on the streets demonstrating back in my you know, 1819 first understood oh hang on there's this thing called sisterhood and then the understanding of what that means has uh, you know deepened and unfolded over the years but what I see sometimes is women getting older and maybe they knew it but they have forgotten about it or maybe they never really knew it and that feels very sad because we, we we're doing this journey essentially into our old womanhood alone it's our own personal journey but we don't need to be without other women's voices and arms beside us and I think that makes all the difference so to grow into old womanhood without understanding that you can reach out to your sisters or that you're there for other women to be their sister um, that that's what I am afraid of for older women that we forget that and also that we forget that we do have voices as older women, yes. that we allow the culture to to silence us effectively. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you have another song in you. Well, I actually have a comedy song. Oh, goodness. That 
that's good. That's a good. That would be a good way to end. Gosh, I, I don't. We've done don't death and loss and all of the rest of it. So yeah, comedy, I know, let's bring it on. Lighten it up a bit. <laughs> um, I don't write many of these, but when I was thinking about this, I thought, I do you know. I'll go back to this and. I wrote this when I was 50, so this is quite an old song. Oh, now. your menopause song. My menopause. Which oh, I love that. that. Okay, so I sang this for the first time to a festival of women um, when I was 50, and I decided to do it in a small sequined black cocktail dress and wearing lipstick, both of which I had never done before and haven't done since. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of like it was pushing myself beyond my own personal boundaries, which at that point manifested as a cocktail dress and lipstick. But there we go. So I sang this song then and I really was in the space of it 15 years ago. But I can still remember entirely how it feels um, having come through it and now looking across other women in that space and I feel like I'm, I want to keep singing this song just to go you know what it's gonna be all right <laughs> so it's that song brilliant so you like that song off Jen. you go okay so you this, you have to kind of imagine this like an old time music hall and imagine there's an audience of hundreds of rather over enthusiastic women who've got very emboldened middle-aged women all accompanying the song with hooting and cheering and defiant shouting. That's kind of the atmosphere of the song. I'm a storm in a bucket, a hot flash in the pan. I'm at sixes and sevens once more. In a bother, a pickle, a ruction, a tangle, a great seething volcanic roar. I feel volatile, irrational, and really rather strange. I break a lot of dishes and I shout, although I might seem normal. Inside I'm quite deranged. What are these raw feelings all about? Inside each older woman lives a furnace, a fire. Who knows where it will lead? Don't worry if you burn. It's simply just your turn for a touch of menopausal anarchy. Inside each older woman dwells a chaos, a chasm. Who knows what it all means? It can't get any worse, so no matter if it bursts into a touch of menopausal anarchy. I've endeavoured to keep calm and not to make a fuss, not to bring disorder, no cause a commotion. But here's a little secret and it's just between us. There's no way to stem this wild emotion. I cannot be silent even when I should. Hell, I must speak my mind, I've had enough. Restraint and diplomacy are all well and good, but for a woman in her middle years, they're tough. Inside each older woman spins a turmoil, a tempest. How scary can that be? You really should be warned. There's no proof against the storm of a touch of menopausal anarchy. Inside each older woman, there's a riot, a rampage, hormonal trickery. I hope you'll understand when we're getting out of hand. It's a touch of menopausal anarchy. I hope you'll understand 
for we're getting out of hand. It's a touch of menopausal anarchy. <laughs> that should be played you're quite right to every woman even contemplating entering into menopause <laughs> and it's on uh, now which album is it on oh my goodness i think it's on weathered edge weathered edge, weathered edge. so if you would like to listen to that with a full musical accompaniment then <laughs> go to carolyn's website and buy the weathered edge um was it like that for you Men well it clearly was like that for you menopause yeah i think it was actually less about the physical um manifestations and more about what was going on in the mind yeah me too you know, it was yeah. all of that it, that I went mad I went completely mad did you? <laughs> what did that look like it was scary um but it was it was all right I got there I got out through the other side so that was really fine <laughs> yeah I, I, I raged I against yeah, I, I was just, I just got ridiculous. I mean, I got angry over ridiculous things, but also over some really serious things. It's just like mm. all of the things, particularly from younger men trying to patronize me that I had been dealing with all my life. It's just mm. like, you know, one of them just had to to say something in the wrong tone and I'd be yeah, right absolutely. on top of them. It was lunatic. Yeah, absolutely. And some of it's functional, isn't it, at some level? I had one, just this is a very small last anecdote, but I had one occasion in the middle of that menopausal time when I was working in my studio, which looks out onto an area where our chickens tend to hang around. And I heard this big commotion and I, look, I looked out and there was a fox with one of the chickens in its mouth. And I flung open the windows and I yelled out, I won't say what I yelled out, but I yelled out a, a really raw curse curse up to the fox who was so shocked it dropped the chicken and ran off and the chicken shook itself got up and carried on which was fine but what happened was because it was a still day my curse ricocheted all through the valley <laughs> and Nigel was up visiting another farmer at the top of the valley and could hear it and the, the man turned to him and went, oh, yeah, that'll be your wife then. <laughs> she was kind of, that was it. That was exactly how I was oh, being. That's perfect. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely anecdote on which turns you're quite right. I wish we could go on for much longer, but we're kind of getting out of time. So thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. And please tell people all of the ways that they can find you, because I really hope they will come looking because you are absolutely recommended in everything that you do. So off you go. Websites and the whole lot. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone who's listening. I have two websites. The music one is seventhwavemusic.co.uk. And my women's teaching program is thebraidedriver.co.uk. And just say a couple of words about that just before I let you go, because that's a new thing, isn't it? Your online teaching. Well, yes. Um, thank goodness for learning all about Zoom a few years ago. So this is uh, an online program, which is a rolling program. It doesn't matter where you come in or when you leave. And it has three journeys within it. It's called the Weaver's Trail. And it's a combination of many things of texts and images and live Zoom sessions and film content and songs and physical little packages that come through the post. So I've been journeying with um, a whole tribe of women. We've been doing this since last midsummer. And uh, this is how I'm going to be able to teach more as I go into my older years. Yeah. And it's sometimes more comfortable, isn't it? That little withdrawal so that you're not quite so. I find it difficult, increasingly difficult being visible as I get older, I think. So the online teaching provides some sense of no, the connection is still there, but it feels a little bit safer somehow. 
Yes, I agree. That's it's it's beautiful actually. It can be a very beautiful way of communicating. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hagitude Sessions. Please think about writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership program, please visit hagitude.org.